The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello everyone, um, welcome to the School of English Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series in collaboration with the Trinity Long Room Hub. I'm Claire Poynton-Smith, one of the co-conveners of the Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series, along with Orla Donnelly and Ginevra Biancini. I would like to welcome you all to this afternoon's talk in the series, which is an important and supportive space for postgraduate students, faculty and guests to present and discuss their current research. Today, we are positively delighted to be hearing from PhD researchers from TCD, Orla Donnelly and Shafali Banerjee, who will be delivering papers titled The Storm Centre of the World, Tourism and the Gothic Frontier in Arthur Conan Doyle's The Tragedy of the Carrasco, and The Othered Side, Beyond the Voice of the White Creole in Jean Rees's short fiction, respectively. Each paper will last for 20 minutes with time for questions at the end of the second paper. Before we begin, a little bit of housekeeping. Please could you use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen at any time to ask a question. And please let us know who the question is for since we have two speakers today. The chat function is available for general comments. If you're tweeting, please tag TCD English, TLR Hub and Seminars TCD 2021. So once again, a very warm welcome to you all. It is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker today, our very own Orla Donnelly. Orla is a second year PhD student with the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. Her research research interests include late Victorian popular literature, dark tourism and British Egyptian Gothic. Take it away Orla. Thank you Claire for the introduction and thank you to the Long Room Hub for hosting myself and Shafali today. I'm really looking forward to Shafali's paper. It sounds brilliant. Um, You may remember uh, a fortnight ago, we had Dr. Alyssa Bulfin speaking for the seminar series. She was talking to us about uh, environmental catastrophe narratives, and she gave us a reading of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Poison Belt. So I'm continuing today in the Doylean theme by talking to you about Doyle and his 1897 Egyptian-inspired novel, the tragedy of the Crossco. I'm just going to share my screen here. I assume if there's any problems, my uh, friend Claire will hop on and tell me. <laughs> but um, yes, thank you, Claire. Um, so, the tragedy of the Crossco um, is a novel set primarily in the desert region on the border between Egypt and Sudan. It's part of a large body of Egypt-inspired writing by Doyle. Before ever stepping foot there, he'd published two Gothic Egyptological short stories, The Ring of Thoth and Lot Number 249, both uh, stories involving ancient mummies, with Doyle very much capitalizing on the phenomenon of Victorian Egyptomania. That is a fascination with all things associated with ancient Egypt, And we can see this in Victorian uh, art, literature, architecture, uh, exhibition spaces. The list goes on and this uh, continued well into the 20th century. 
Doyle's trip to Egypt in 1895 also inspired a large volume of magazine and newspaper articles on Anglo-Egyptian relations and a number of short stories, including The Three Correspondents, the debut of Bimbashi Joyce, and of course, the short novel, The Tragedy of the Carrasco, which was serialized in the Strand magazine between 1897 and 1898. Also two chapters of the autobiography, Memories and Adventures, are also dedicated to Doyle's time in Egypt. The date of the tragedy of the Carrasco's first appearance is significant, dealing as it does with the British Sudan campaign, which amounted to an all-out war between the British and the Islamic Mahdist Sudanese, or the dervishes, to use a common and derogatory Victorian term. So the novel follows a group of British, American, Irish and French tourists as they make their way up the Nile on a passenger steamer, the titular Carrasco. At a famous archaeological site, the group are ambushed by raiders on camels, the so-called Mahdist rebels, named after the Islamic leader known as the Mahdi. The tourists are then forcibly marched through the desert towards Khartoum, where it is planned the women will be sold into slavery and the men ransomed off for a handsome reward. Of course, the British army swoop in to save the day before any of this can happen. But along the way, uh, there are beheadings and other scenes of pretty graphic violence enacted on the tourists by the Mahdists uh, before they're eventually rescued by the British Camel Corps of the, of the, sorry, the Egyptian Camel Corps of the British Army. So without going into kind of superfluous geopolitical detail, the timing of Carrasco is crucial, dealing as it does with serious themes of war and conflict in the geographical space of the desert, with those tensions then tipping over into the separate spaces designated for tourism. And the tourist scene of the 1890s in Egypt was a world of luxury and comfort, far removed from the political realities of modern Egypt. The Sudan sensation is a term used by Richard Fulton to describe a period during the 1890s in which rolling newspaper accounts of the British Sudan campaign ran like serializations, narrativized with cliffhanger endings. These journalistic accounts of the war were directed at and consumed by a generation that were raised on these boys' own adventure stories, which are kind of a genre of uh, juvenile literature that was at the peak popularity during the 1870s and 1880s. Doyle himself is one of those writers who kind of straddles that boundary between adult and juvenile um, literature. The tragedy of the Carrasco provides the reader with an exhilarating adventure in the desert with all the thrills of the open frontier. And as one contemporary reviewer remarked, it sets all one's pulses beating more quickly. As you can see here, the jacket of the J.B. Lippincott's 1898 edition with the alternative title, A Desert Drama. It pledges its intention to transport the reader to a wild locale with its front cover depiction of a desert landscape. The frontier adventure was being reconfigured by European writers of the 1890s and thus 
turning a political crisis into a, a, a commercial opportunity for authors like Doyle. And you can see here just some of the examples of these kinds of publications. Uh, the memoir of Austrian soldier R. Slatin Pasha, Fire Sword in the Sudan, detailed his time with the Mahdists in graphic detail, including depictions of sexual slavery and beheadings. One of the many historical accounts of the British conquest of Sudan came from none other than a young Winston Churchill who was then acting as a war correspondent. Churchill's The River War painted Islam as a dangerous and flat, fanatical religion. And along with brutal depictions of maddest violence in texts like Pasha's, formed part of an intertextual network of dehumanizing propaganda, which comprised the literature of the so-called Sudan sensation. In the last image, you can see uh, an, an advertisement for The Fires of Fate, which was Doyle's own theatrical adaptation of the tragedy of the crossbow. And so you get the impression then that factual, journalistic and fictional rep representations of this war were all circulating together. And interestingly, when Doyle does describe the Mahdists themselves in uh, his memoirs uh, and in his many articles, he's quite viciously racist. Uh, and I do talk a little bit about Islamophobia uh, in the tragedy of the crossbow in my thesis chapter, but uh, for time considerations, I'll, I'll move on to talk about the Doyle family in Egypt. So Doyle wrote the tragedy of the crossbow based on his experience as a Nile tourist. In 1895, he and his family traveled to Egypt on what was originally intended as a convalescence trip for Doyle's wife, Louise, pictured here. In his autobiography, Doyle wrote of, quote, the wretched microbe which had so completely disorganized our lives. And he's talking here about Louise's tuberculosis uh, for which the Doyles had hoped a winter in Egypt might provide a cure. For six months, the Doyles traveled via passenger steamer up the Nile along the pictured route from Cairo to the port town of Wadi Halfa on the border between Egypt and Sudan, hitting up the usual tourist attractions and archeological sites along the way. But we can only assume that Doyle became rather bored with the sightseeing as he went out of his way to proposition the Westminster Gazette for a commission to travel to the border and report on the maddest conflict. And so only two months after arriving in Cairo, this conventional family holiday soon turned and characteristically enough for Doyle uh, into a spot of danger tourism with Doyle hoping to catch what he called a whiff of real war on the outposts of civilization. Or as he later declared, Retrospectively, in his memoir, Egypt had suddenly become the storm center of the world. Now, the storm center of the world is actually, it's a rather grandiose phrase for Doyle to have chosen here because the expedition turned out to be quite uneventful. Uh, in fact, the um, um, commander in chief of the uh, Egyptian army, Herbert Kitchener, told Doyle that the uh, anticipated conflict but the maddest was in fact months away uh, and he advised him to return to Cairo. Despite this, Doyle drew from his brief frontier venture the imaginative backdrop for his violent and dramatic stories of militarized adventure, including the tragedy of the Crossco, which I'm now finally 
going to talk about. So the original Strand magazine publication of Carrasco has a bewildering number of illustrations by Sidney Paget, who you may recognize uh, from his illustrations of the Sherlock Holmes stories also published in the Strand magazine. And I've copied, copied some of them here in a kind of a sequence. Uh, in the first image, we have the characters relaxing on board their passenger steamer with their dragoman. Uh, and a dragoman is a kind of a servant slash factotum uh, in this picture, obviously acting as a kind of a porter. The movements of the characters as they make their way up the Nile mirror the Doyle families in real life almost exactly. And descriptions of their sightseeing are heavily informed by Doyle's own experience as a rank and file Nile tourist. The next image depicts the pivotal moment in the novel when the tourists are ambushed by Maddists at a famous archeological site in the desert uh, region of Egypt's southern border. Uh, that site is called the Rock of Abu Sir. Perched geographically on the very edge of civilization, as Doyle put it, Abu Sir Rock was a busy sightseeing spot with weekly tours at the time of the novel's setting. Just outside the garrison town of Wadi Halfa, and at the same location where the tourists in, in the tragedy of the Karofsko were abducted, Doyle pictured raiders on camels appearing as if from nowhere from the rocks upper banks, an image recreated by Paget here. Doyle conceived of the horror of such an event occurring at a site designated for tourism with its supposed assurance of safety and distance. And these fears are echoed by Carrasco's characters who likewise express an uneasiness with the rock's proximity to, as they say, the land of the dervishes. Or as the character Miss Sadie remarks, it's like standing on the beautiful edge of a live volcano. So despite this uh, volatile political situation, the winter seasons of the 1890s in Egypt were the most lavish and fashionable the country had ever seen. Indeed, the US excursionist, a magazine published by British travel agency, Thomas Cook and Son, declared the 1896 season to be one of the most brilliant on record. The colonial social scene in Egypt for both tourists and expatriates was largely shielded from the political troubles of the era by the infrastructure built by tourism, with Thomas Cook and his son John Mason being the key players in the industry throughout the 19th century. And although Thomas Cook had his um, competitors in the likes of John Murray or, or Henry Gaze, the kind of scale of Cook's operation in Egypt and the, the influence he had on the imperial politics of the era are unparalleled. And we can see here in this picture, um, Thomas Cook second from, the, second from the left in his bowler hat and the kind of uh, intimate relationship that he had with Egypt's rulers and, and, and political elite. Cook's major accomplishment and how he differentiated himself from his competitors was by his general policy of cushioning tourists against the rigours, even the realities of Middle Eastern life. And that is according to uh, Thomas Cook biographer, uh, Pierce Brandon. This included a heavy campaign of advertisements promoting the allure of the ancients, the romance of the desert. 
which is an image somewhat at odds with the political realities at a time when periodic insurrection and bloody skirmishes along the border were a cause of serious concern from the British perspective. The Cook trademark had become synonymous with safety and comfort achieved through a business model which emphasized security and convenience for its customers. Sheltered by the newly refurbished grand hotels and chaperoned by servants and dragomen, the Western tourist of the 1890s was enveloped in a contrived atmosphere of Oriental luxury and taken up with the various social pursuits in the turf and leisure clubs of cities like Cairo and Alexandria. So their experience was one where modern Islamic Egyptians hardly featured other than as servants or as native guides. So known, known derogatively as Cook's Hordes, Cook's Circus and Cook's Vandals, uh, the Thomas Cook tourist was the subject of repeated ridicule. And we see this play out in the press throughout the 19th century. And there are countless articles, particularly in um, Blackwood's magazine and the Pall Mall Gazette, basically slagging tourists off because of course, then as now, the traveler versus tourist dichotomy was quite pervasive in, in discourse. Now, it bears repeating that Doyle and his family were themselves traveling in Egypt as Cook's tourists. So the idea of Doyle, uh, the independent globetrotter, traveling with a luxury tour provider and following a program of prearranged sightseeing seems at odds with the image of the rugged adventurist associated with his literary and world, real world personas. Doyle's combined endeavor of commercial and military tourism, military in his role as war correspondent, it speaks to the kind of uh, symbiotic dynamic of the colonial processes of travel and occupation. George Nunes, proprietor of the Strand magazine in which uh, Carrasco first appeared, wrote in 1898, Egypt is now in the hands of two armies of occupation. One is composed of British, British soldiers and the other of the men of Thomas Cook and Son. Under the leadership of John Mason Cook, the company's dealings with the War Office included a lucrative contract for transporting goods and equipment during the British mission to rescue General Gordon, who was taken captive by the Mahdi at Khartoum in 1884. So the role played by the company in the Gordon Relief Expedition as a, both a commercial and imperial venture was, according to biographer Pierce Brendan, one of the most notable episodes in the firm's history. The tragedy of the Crossco demonstrates a sense of disillusionment with the packaged tourist experience. And it's particularly evident in the beginning chapters the Carrasco party, who would have looked similar to the one pictured here, they face only frustration and disappointment on their excursion up the Nile until they're eventually wrenched from their guided course by Maddists and then thrust into a radically different environment. Before then, uh, the tourists frequently complain about the crowds, the guides, the graffiti and the kind of chattering of other bored and disinterested tourists. At a well-known temple site, for example, the character Cecil Brown objects to the ticketing system. He says, 
When I present a check at the door and go in as if it were a Barnum's show, all the subtle feeling of romance goes right out of it. And this is a common analogy that gets thrown around when it comes to Thomas Cook, the analogy of the circus or of the cultural artifact or um, object um, as, a, as, a, as a commodified attraction being basically degraded. Um, so the structured nature of commercial tourism denies these weary travelers meaningful and life-altering experiences. Arguably their one authentic experience is their captivity, which forces a life-changing encounter with the foreign other, which is basically just an extreme version of tourism's ultimate object. So to come back to this image, depicting the moment the tourists are abducted or the moment they spot the maddests materializing from the rocks, it's a typical example of Doyle's use of landscapes, which in the novel function to gothicize the treatment of its subject matter. Doyle often turns to the Gothic mode when fictionalizing historical developments, particularly in moments of national and political crisis. Doyle spent a good deal of his creative energy on the idea of border exploration, which he exercised topographically in his adventure stories like The Tragedy of the Crossbow, and also psychically through his later spiritualist writings, which as Patrick Brantlinger points out, conflate thresholds of discovery with frontiers of the soul. Alyssa Bulfin in her book, Gothic Invasions, talks about the more Gothicized aspects of the novel. But Crosco is never included in scholarship which examines Doyle's Gothic fictions, even though the novel matches Catherine Wynne's contention that Doyle's Gothic motifs are bound up with the thematics of colonialism. The desert setting in Crosco is key to its primitive atmosphere. A kind of deathly panorama envelops the tourists as they edge further and further away from the safety of their passenger steamer. Marching in a state of limbo between life and death through a desert littered thickly with bodies, the tourists and their captors must navigate a gothic topography of dust, bone and sand. Everywhere in Carrasco, the landscape is rendered weird. And I think Paget fails to capture that weirdness in his many illustrations and the kind of lawlessness in the novel that's characteristic of Doyle's gothic plots in general. The opening chapter sets this tone with a passage which reveals the primitivism of the Nubian desert, a savage and illimitable desert, uh, extending up to the whole breadth of Africa. And I don't have time to read the quote in full, but basically uh, we get a serpentine image of Nubia rising like a green sandworm, which is a reproduction of Doyle's repeated use of the snake motif. Catherine Wynne and Daryl Jones both argue as a libidinized and gothic symbol, slippery, phallic, and impossible to colonize. So in this way, Doyle's desert functions on a symbolic level, not unlike the slimy boglands in stories like The Hound of the Baskervilles or The Mystery of Clumber. And so to conclude, Carrasco is not embedded in the occult trappings of ancient Egypt in the way Doyle's early mummy stories are, and is set rather in the immediate present during the British conquest of Sudan. Tourism is the mechanism 
for this clash of civilizations to play out. And I'm borrowing that uh, term from uh, Andrew Glaser's reading of the novel in his article of the same name. Carrasco is as much then, if not further Gothicized by its modern setting, in as much as the very definitional basis of the Gothic references the uncivilized, barbaric and primitive as it encroaches upon the enlightened present. And now I acknowledge there is a lot more to be teased out here in terms of the Gothic frontier and what uh, makes the tragedies of Carrasco, if not a Gothic novel, certainly a, a novel which um, Alyssa Bulfin points out uh, has heavily Gothicized elements. Uh, and that's me, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ola, for that fascinating insight. Um, I really enjoyed that, and I'm sure many people in our audience did too. Um, I've made some notes that I won't recite, but I thought there were some lovely turns of phrase there, really encapsulating a lot of fabulous analysis. So, And I expected nothing less, um, but brilliant. Thank you. So we will take questions and answers at the end. So if you do have a question for Orla, please add that into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen um, and we will take the questions we have time for at the end. But in the meantime, I am delighted to introduce our second speaker, Shafali Banerjee. Um, and um, I'll read your bio, Shafali. So Shafali is a first year PhD student at the School of English, exploring questions of race, gender and identity in the short stories of Jean Rhys under the supervision of Dr. Melanie Otto. Shafali graduated with an honours degree in English from St. Xavier's College, Calcutta, India in 2016, followed by an MA in English from the University of Calcutta in India in 2018. She recently presented her work in conferences such as Manchester Metropolitan University's Breaking Boundaries, Reimagining Borders in Postcolonial and Migrant Studies, and Northeast Modern Language Association's 53rd Annual Convention. Her wider research interests include postcolonial and decolonial theory, 20th and 21st century, global anglophone literatures, race theory, and gender and queer studies. So take it away, Shafali, you should be able to share your slides now. Thank you, Claire. I'll just share my screen now. Um, yeah. So, sorry. So I would be talking about Jean Visa's short fiction here. And as we all know, Jean Wies has played a significant role in the shaping of post-colonial studies in uh, Caribbean literature by making the West Indies scene and shaping our understanding of the white Creole subjectivity, especially with the novel White Sargasso Sea, which writes back to Bronte's image of the mad woman in the Arctic. As a result, White Sargasso Sea has emerged as essential reading for post-colonial studies in university curricula the world over. So I studied it as part of my uh, specialization in post-colonialism back in India, and I'm aware that the text is taught here as well. And as a result, Wies has also been proclaimed unanimously as a post-colonial writer 
writing from both the periphery as well as the center. But uh, with this sort of a reading, uh, we also have to ask the question, how does her short fiction represent the varied mar marginalities beyond that of the white Creole? So how does she uh, represent other marginalized characters in her work? Um, so in Rizian fiction, there are interstices that accommodate other marginalized voices, in particular, the black voice, the mulatto from with the Euro-African mixed ancestry and the occasional Carib, especially in her short stories, which have been overlooked or, and underrepresented in Risen scholarship for decades, uh, which is quite interesting because uh, we started her writing career with short stories and the last uh, collection, uh, the last work of fiction that she put out was also a collection of short stories, but somehow her short stories often get ignored, whereas White Sagasusi has always been the focus of um, uh, risen scholarship. Um, now, um, as far as the other characters in her text, in her short fiction are concerned, inhabiting unique positions within the plot sometimes as an auxiliary character, sometimes as a protagonist, and sometimes as merely an evanescent presence, uh, these other voices inform the hierarchies and intersections of the marginalized within the Rizian narrative structure. So in this regard, while the white Creole is afforded the possibility of mixing in with the crowd when it comes to uh, them being in the colonial center, the same opportunity is not offered to the racially other whose difference begins with the visual distinction of skin and can be assimilated at first glance itself. So this is a difference that Reese often acknowledges in her representation of the white Creole, and yet tends to undermine when crafting the other in her fiction. Now, uh, this is not me saying that uh, the white Creole was not marginalized. Uh, so while the white Creole is indeed marginalized in the metropole, their roots in plantocracy and exploitative history cannot really be overlooked in the colonial periphery. Their complicity in the uh, in slavery puts them in juxtaposition to the black colored and other marginalized voices of the colonial periphery. So um, in this regard, I would be looking at the representation of the other marginalized voices, communities um, beyond the subjectivity of white Creole. And I would be looking at four short stories in particular because they kind of represent her uh, her basic characterization of the other. Um, the short stories will be Let Them Call It Jazz, The Day They Burned the Books, Dance Purdy, and Fishy Waters. So beginning with Let Them Call It Jazz, the story opens by highlighting the debilitating circumstances of the other protagonist, Selena Davis, of Martinique origin. Here, the othering of the central character 
intersects on multiple levels where she's not just doubly but triply marginalized um, as a result of uh, the interactions between an oppressed race, class, and gender position. Now, this marginalization leads to the character's instability in the colonial center, faced with both homelessness and unemployment, uh, Selena is forced to rely on the kindness of the metropolitan man, Mr. Sims, who offers her a home, but with no fixed contracts, terms, stability, or security. It is implied that he, in fact, may be trying to instate her into prostitution, but that is not said, it out, said out loud in the plot of the short story. Now, Nevertheless, the kindness of Mr. Sims is thus conditional, insecure, kind of predatory as far as um, the uh, instability of the, of the refuge is concerned. And it doesn't really lay out clearly the terms of his benevolence. So he does offer her an accommodation, but there's no, um, there are no fixed terms for it. It is important here to highlight Selena's racial position. Farise employs the characterization and voice of a woman of mixed ancestry, where Selena tells us, my father is a white man and mother is fair colored woman, fairer than I am this same. She further elaborates that she was raised by her grandmother who is, and I quote, quite dark and what we call country cookie, uh, but she's the best I know, unquote. Now this becomes significant further down the story when her white respectable neighbor exclaims in anger and disappointment that at least the other thoughts that Crook installed here were white girls. So when Selena moves into Sims' house, the move destabilizes the white neighborhood's hierarchy and exclusivity, kind of. So Selena is kind of like a threat to the neighborhood. And with no wall between Sims' house and the rest of the houses, Selena enters the white man's space, threatening his hegemony. This is further heightened by Selena's use of patois and her loud voice. Now, on this use of Petua, I must quote critic uh, Christine Sarnecki to bring to attention the implications of Reese's use of dialect. So I'm not going to read the entire quote, but basically um, the scholar says that um, Reese uh, uses the dialect and she employs the dialect in a, uh, in a period when the modernists were already doing that. So writers such as Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, and Gertrude Stein, they were using the black dialect to create innovative literature. So mostly like for aesthetic purposes, which was a privilege not afforded to black writers. So African-American writers of the Harlem Renaissance uh, deliberated over dialect and uh, they hesitated to use the dialect for fear of propagating the stereotypes. So in Reese's use of patois, there is some sort of a privilege because she can use it for aesthetic purposes, but a black writer may not be able to do so. Now this appropriation of patois on Reese's part 
while positive in its intent and used to highlight the plight of the racially othered woman, is a writing strategy afforded to her by a cohort of fellow white modernist writers, an aesthetic, as I said, the black writer hesitates to use. However, at least in this story, let them call it jazz, the representation of a black woman of mixed ancestry or a colored woman as they were called then, comes with agency and power, qualities not afforded to another woman of mixed ancestry featured in the short story, The Day They Burned the Books. Now in this short story, we are introduced to the protagonist's friend, Eddie, with pale blue eyes and straw-colored hair, so with European uh, features, the living image of his father, though often as silent as his mother. We are also introduced to the not gentleman English father, Mr. Sawyer, who had married a colored woman, and I quote, a colored woman, though a decent, respectable, nicely educated colored woman, mind you, unquote. Now, throughout the initial uh, paras and uh, lines of the story, we are informed of the rude, derogatory treatment of Mrs. Sawyer at the hands of Mr. Sawyer and her silent acceptance of the same. Simultaneously, we are also introduced to Mr. Sawyer's vast collection of books, a symbol of pride to him, a curiosity to both children, the protagonist and Eddie, and an object of hatred for Mrs. Sawyer. After Mr. Sawyer's death, the children take possession of the book filled room with Eddie declaring the collection to be his books. However, not long after, Mr. So Mrs. Sawyer sorry, and, um, ends up selling, or much worse, tearing and burning the books with sheer hate. Now, this is an important moment in the plot, this burning down of books, because in the burning of the books is Mrs. Sawyer's revenge of years of mistreatment at the hands of Mr. Sawyer. Nevertheless, it is also important to highlight how this moment plays into the stereotype of the angry, savage, colored woman. Um, in the burning of the books, one might argue that there is implications of rejection of education, knowledge, civilization, culture, and such. The burning of the books is an act of violence playing right into the hands of notion of the colored as an unstable character and a volatile threat to the social structure. As Kenneth Ramchand puts it, um, if the colored did not read or write fiction in the 18th and 19th centuries, their peculiar position of stress has made them of great interest to writers of modern West Indian fiction. Almost without exception, the literary presentations either derive from or consolidate the two stereotypes of the colored person, the unstable mulatto and the highly sexed and sensuous colored woman in West Indian writing. So somehow this ends up um, playing into the stereotype uh, of the unstable raging image of the colored woman. Now, as far as stereotypes go, another group that finds mention, though very little in within short fiction is the Carib. Here we would be looking at the representation in the short story, Tempsperdi, 
in this piece, the carib appears to be an exotic creature to be exhibited, put on show, and gawked at. The protagonist arranges to go see a beautiful carib girl in the carib quarter and is eventually disappointed when she realizes it's a Creole and not a pure carib. So there's a lot of stereotype going on here as well. Here, the stereotypes about caribs are employed fully by the author using a colonist gaze with descriptions such as, and I quote, the small black slanting eyes of the pure carib and passages such as, but I wasn't so easily put off. All my life I had been curious about these people because of a book I once read, thereby denying them any humanity, individuality or voice and treating them as, as something to be gawked at as, as exhibition pieces. Now, perhaps the most significant of these passages is um, actually surprisingly disguised as a black man's utterance in the story, where he goes on to say, um, oh no, that's a carib. And I won't, I won't read the whole quote, but it goes like, then the caribs, the cannibals came from mainland of South America and killed off the few men who were left. So he was basically talking about how Caribs are not the original natives of West Indies and how they were cannibals who uh, employed vi uh, violence on the natives. Now, it's quite interesting that he mentioned the, uh, the character mentions cannibals because um, uh, the uh, critic Gad Human actually says that the Caribs have received considerable in attention, partly because Europeans believed that the Caribs practiced cannibalism. Even now, there is considerable debate around the Caribs and cannibalism. And although the evidence is not conclusive, it is likely that it is ex if it existed, their cannibalism had largely ritualistic function functions. But the most important part of this quote is, the Spanish often claimed that the Indians who opposed them were cannibals and used that as a basis for enslaving them. So there's really no true um, cause to believe that the Caribs were cannibals, but it's basically a stereotype that's perpetuated even in recent short story. Now, finally, we come to the short story, Fishy Waters, um, to examine the portrayal of the black servants in the text. Now, this is quite interesting because there are two black servants in the text. One is Octavia Joseph and one is Janet. Now, on one hand, we have Octavia Joseph, who had been in service of the central character, Mr. Penrice, the colonist, and who was, and I quote, not only a kind woman, but a perfectly reliable one, unquote. This characterization in the short story plays right into the trope of the loyal servant, loyal black servant indebted to the master for life, even after their service is no longer required. While we are not given any other detail about Olivia making her an accessory to further the colonists plot, this representation when contrasted with the passing mention of the Negro maid Janet and they come in, but they don't smile here, no smilers with a knife, no. 
seems to employ the tropes of blackness as a threat to be regarded with suspicion at all times if they don't constantly exhibit their loyalty to the white man in the colony. Now this assimilates the colonist's view of black presence in the colony, only viewed in a positive light when they are of use to the colonist. Um, under any other circumstances, they are seen as a threat continually, even as they exist silently and go about their day in the white man's space. Therefore, while the loudness of the racialized other is seen as a danger, as is the case for Selena Davis in Let Them Call It Jazz, the silence isn't perceived any better as we see in the case of Janet in Fishy Waters, thus making it impossible for the racialized other to exist neutrally in the colonists or colonizers' presence. Uh, with this, I conclude my um, conclude uh, my presentation. Um, the so the other voices beyond that of the white Creole represented in Jean Vise's short fiction can be complex and led. They can both strive to characterize the marginalization and subsequent empowerment of the other voices while also at the same time playing into the stereotypes per perpetuated by the colonizers. So they may both represent as well as appropriate the racialized other. However, something that binds the representations altogether uh, in instances more than one is the strategy of their deployment to validate and or supplement the white Creole subjectivity. As Veronica Gregg articulates, Jean Reese's self-fashioning is constructed both in terms of a dual relation to Europe and through the recruitment of the silence or degraded natives as part of her identity. Towards the metropolitan subject, the Creole often articulates a position of liminality towards the West Indian mulatto and black others the Creole demonstrates a sense of proprietorship that allows for the appropriation and recruitment of race as an accessory of power and cope of otherness. That's all, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just so, thank you so much Shafali and thank you again, Orla. Um, just a reminder to our attendees to please drop any questions you have in the Q&A at the bottom of your screen. We do have one um, from one of our panellists, which I'll kick us off with in a moment. But I just wanted to thank you both again um, for such fascinating and detailed insights into your research. And I believe they're drawing on research for your first chapters for your theses, both of you. And it's just really fantastic to see and get a, a proper kind of insight. Um, so I really enjoyed both of those papers. And as you know, as a medievalist, it's quite out of my normal wheelhouse. So I'm not going to rely on myself to ask super sophisticated questions. But we do have a question from Ginny, uh, Ginevra, who says, I have a question for Orla. Um, to your knowledge, did Agatha Christie take any inspiration from Conan Doyle's for her Poirot's classic, Death on the Nile, as there seemed to me to be some similarities? Hi, Ginny. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
honest, honest, honestly, I, I have no idea. I don't know um, if I, I'm not aware. Of course, Agatha Christie read Arthur Conan Doyle, who didn't. Um, but but uh, certainly, uh, I would imagine this kind of uh, that I mentioned phenomenon of British Egyptomania, which kind of um, people date back to like the Napoleonic invasions, um, was really still going strong at the time that uh, Christie would have written that. Um, uh, as far as Arthur Conan Doyle is concerned, I, I really have to hold my hands up and say I, I, I couldn't quite be sure. Um, has anybody out of interest seen the recent um, Kenneth Branagh uh, adaptation of Death on the Nile? I haven't. Should I? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's not mm, very mixed reviews. I don't really know. I, I don't like to admit that I quite liked it. <laughs> we won't tell anyone. Um, well, this is being recorded, but we won't Some tell kind anyone. Some kind of weird, else. weird characterizations of Poirot, though, that were a bit, but, you know, enjoyed the trappings. Yes, yes. So Ginny said in the chat that she hasn't yet seen the Kenneth Branagh adaptation, but she was curious to see it. Um, so maybe we'll have to do a joint PhD researcher excursion. Um, we can come up with a trip. Um, so just while we wait and see whether anyone else has any questions, um, and I don't know if it's just post-reading week fatigue or if people are processing and absorbing this wealth of information. Um, Shafali, I admit that your topic is even more out of my range of experience literature-wise um, than the Gothic. But I wondered if you wanted to add anything about um, kind of whether it's, oh, I've been told there is a question for Shafali. Oh, the Q&A did not notify me. Thank you, Ginny. And apologies, Dr. Otto. Um, so we also have a comment from Bernice Murphy saying, well done both. For some reason, the Q&A hadn't pinged me. So here we are, you are saved from my sort of fumbling comments um so we have a question from melanie otto for shafali saying could you argue that reese rather than stereotyping a black voice identifies with selena in jazz reese herself would have been othered in europe because of her caribbean origin as a white west indian patois was also part of her heritage and she would have been able to speak it um i actually um, so when it comes to the story, uh, let them call it jazz, I do believe that um, there is like, in the case of this short story particularly, there's no stereotyping, but rather um, a proper representation, uh, an authentic representation. But even uh, my argument would be that even in her use of patois, um, she suddenly certainly has this privilege of using this patois for like aesthetic purpose or for like um, lending authenticity to the plot without it being questioned or without it uh, like falling prey to any sort of like um, conversation on stereotyping or something, some sort of like um, mockery. But when it comes to black writers, when they use dialect, um, as uh, as um, I shared previously, when black writers from the Harlem Renaissance they used the dialect, they were a little wary because they did not want that dialect to be 
seen as some sort of a stereotypical representation, something that could be mocked. So yes, I do agree that it, uh, Patwa is part of her um, heritage as well, but there's a certain privilege in her usage of the Patwa, which will not be afforded to any other colored writer. I hope that answers the question. Thank you. That was a really detailed answer. Um, and thank you, Dr. Otto, for the question. We have a comment here from James O'Brien saying, thanks, Shafali and Orna, for two fascinating talks, um, which is lovely to see this feedback coming in. Um, I did have a question for you, Orla, which is partly born of my own ignorance, um, but I didn't know much about dark tourism at all before your talk. Um, so it's a completely new idea to me. And the Thomas Cook holidays to kind of go and see these fascinating places um, just struck me as a really alien idea. Um, I wondered whether that was a kind of equivalent of the Victorian kind of, um, I hesitate to say freak shows, so I'm putting it in quote marks, but this idea of kind of displaying the other and the, in quote marks, exotic, lots of quote marks, um, kind of back at home and having those kind of curiosities on display um, whether that was kind of that package as a holiday and depicted as some kind of hearkening at an authentic experience. And you address the idea that it, it probably wasn't very authentic and isn't in the story. But I wondered if there was an equivalency there. I think this would be a great question for our fellow PhD student, Esther Riley, who was actually studying uh, disability and freak shows in, in the 19th century. Um, certainly you could go down plenty of rabbit holes when it comes to dark tourism because it has so many different subcategories. Mm. Uh, and of course, one of them obviously being, you know, things like people cite often the body worlds exhibitions in the in the noughties, you know, where people would go and see, you know, um, displayed anatomies. Um, so that's often cited as, as a version of dark tourism. Um, yeah, it, 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 I hate to say you, 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 can, you can describe anything as kind of vaguely macabre as dark tourism, but because I, I, I don't want to collapse the definition into meaninglessness, but at the same time, you know, there is a lot of freedom in it um, because it's so wide, wide ranging. And the 19th century, people were definitely finding different ways to kind of explore their fascination with all these mm. kinds of things. Uh, and of course, it, as you mentioned with the freak shows, a lot of that would kind of um, overlap with kind of discourses of um, scientific discourses and, you know, um, Victorians loved their kind of taxonomies and all the rest of it. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> no, it's, it's really fascinating. And um, I just, yeah, I'd never thought of it in that way. Um, and I found it really illuminating. And this idea of kind of the morbid fascination combined with a package holiday was just it's something I'm still processing. Um, so we've had a couple of um, comments just praising you both. So from Eva Burke, we have both fascinating papers, well done. And from Claire Clark, we have well done both, really enjoyed your papers, but have to dash off now. So if we've missed you, goodbye, Claire. Bye, um, Claire. <laughs> and then we have a question from Janice Daitner for you, Orla, which starts with, thank you both for such fascinating papers. I have a question for Orla. Can you comment on the Gothic aspects of the borders 
in Conan Doyle's The Lost World. Does that text tie into the dark tourism that you're talking about here? Absolutely, I would say that it does. I mean, at one point I was considering making an entire chapter about the idea of lost worlds uh, as these kind of uh, repositories for um, uh, and the opportunities that they present for this kind of exploration that, of course, the packaged tourist experience doesn't uh, doesn't quite offer. Um, I think uh, the lost world is, um, although I, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think Arthur Conan Doyle traveled to South America, but I, I do believe that um, the lost world was based upon his correspondences with uh, Roger Casement, who had been working as a kind of a, 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 I don't know, a, a diplomat or something over there. I'm not sure people would be horrified that I'm quite ignorant about this, but um so I think he had a he had a textual reference for creating um, the lost world, um, in terms of, of of borders and boundaries. I I couldn't quite comment, but I do know that in his kind of Professor Challenger um, trilogy of, of of novels, uh, and we heard Alyssa Bolfin talk about uh, the Poison Belt last week, um, the kind of musings on on death and um, religion and they're they're very spiritualist inflected um you know these these kind of borders that that i i mentioned patrick brantlinger talks about the psychic borders that doyle kind of explores as well as topographical ones and the spiritualist writings offer a kind of a uh, the border in this case being a, a, a the veil between the spirit world and the material world um, I, I can't answer your question because, uh, um, yeah, that's all I got. Thanks, Janice. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very happily out of my depth, and um, just I thought both both kind of areas we've discussed today have been so um, I've said detailed once, and I'll keep saying it, but so kind of analytical and so detailed, and such a kind of narrow but deep insight into your work so just I wanted to thank you both so much for joining us um so we are out of time but thank you to everyone who sent in their questions um as the event draws to a close we would like to remind you that our next seminar will be on Tuesday the 29th of March again from 4 till 5 p.m and I believe we have our speaker in the audience at the moment, but tune in to hear Trinity's Dr. Bernice Murphy give her paper, What Happened 100 Years Ago is Happening Again, Confronting the Ghosts of the California Past in John Carpenter's The Fog, 1980. The link to register is in the Zoom chat right now if you would like to take a note of it or indeed click on it. And it will also be circulated via email and on our Twitter closer to the time. Um, as always, you can contact us at staffpostgrads2021 at gmail.com and our Twitter is seminars at seminarstcd2021. Thank you to everyone and thank you again to our speakers. Thank you to the Long Room Hub. Uh, thank you to my co-conveners, Ginny doing extra hard work this week um, as our fabulous Orla was presenting. And thank you all so much. Um, we look forward to seeing you in a fortnight. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sea. The Hub is about impact.
Here's to the next 10 years.